Go ahead and find Jeremiah chapter 34 with me. Jeremiah 34. <coughs> Jeremiah 34. The book of Jeremiah is uh, famously out of order. Um, you know, in it, you'll read a sermon, you might read a sermon in one chapter, uh, delivered by Jeremiah in the reign of Zedekiah, the final king of Judah, as Babylon's getting ready to sweep through and decimate the nation. So you'll get that in one chapter, and then in the following chapter, you'll get a sermon Jeremiah preached 20 years earlier, in the reign of Jehoiakim, or something like that. And so for that reason, many people find Jeremiah a difficult book, and there's a lot of questions, how is it that the book is arranged this way? And one way to deal with the sort of out-of-orderness out of Jeremiah would be to kind of edit it ourselves and try to put it back in order. And there'd be some value in that, in sort of keeping the events, the order of events straight. It might help us with chronology. But it would, it would lose out on the work of the biblical author and the work of the biblical editor of these stories, who I think intentionally ordered this book in the way he did for his own reasons, not chronologically, but often thematically. He wants to put stories together that go together, even if they happened 20 years apart. Case in point, Jeremiah 34 and 35. Jeremiah 34 contains a story about something Zedekiah did during the Babylonian siege. 589 is the year. Chapter 35 tells a story about an interaction Jeremiah has with a group of people called the Rechabites 12 years earlier. So they are chronologically disconnected, these two chapters, but thematically they are perfect matches. Really, what I want to call them is mirror images. That's what's happening here. A mirror image is happening in Jeremiah 34 and 35. These two chapters are about the same thing. Whether or not Judah will honor the promises that they have made to their fathers. Chapter 34 is about a choice to break those promises. Chapter 35 is about a choice to keep those promises. Chapter 34 is about an unfaithful choice. Chapter 35 is about a faithful choice. They are put together as models of faithfulness. One very, very bad and one very, very good. And together, I think they present us with a challenge. Are we a people who honor our word, and especially our word, to honor the Father's word? When we say things like, I will follow Jesus. When we make the good confession before we are baptized, yes, I believe these things about Jesus, and I plan on living like I believe those. And we're baptized, we begin a new life. When we give our word, what kind of people will we be in the aftermath of giving our word? Are we people who are faithful to that word or not? Jeremiah 34 and 35 issues that challenge. So what I want to do this morning is to walk through these chapters and then come down and think about the challenge they present to us. So let's begin with Zedekiah who I'm going to call the promise-breaking king. Verse 1, just very briefly, gives us, gives us historical context. Verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and all of its cities. So we get here in the, the reign of Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the king of Judah. But the reason Zedekiah became king was uh, to become a puppet of Babylon. Um, for some time, Babylon had already sort of asserted themselves over the region. They didn't just come through and decimate it on day one. For a while, they wanted to see if Judah would sort of work with them and pay their taxes and, and obey, uh, obey Babylon's rule. 
And as a part of that, they put someone in charge, an Israelite in charge, they thought would help advance Babylon's interests, Zedekiah. Not a bad choice, because I think we find Zedekiah, I've heard him described as a weather vane. He just always points in whatever direction the wind is blowing. So they see someone who's pliable, someone they can use. However, that often works in the other direction. When there are influences in the government that said, hey, we don't need to pay these taxes to Babylon. Hey, there are other nations that don't like what Babylon's doing. Hey, we can rebel against them. When he hears that, Zedekiah gets other ideas in his head, and he begins conspiring with neighboring nations to rebel against Babylon. So in response, in the year 589, Babylon invades and they begin a siege. And this chapter, we are told, takes place in the midst of this antagonism, of this invasion. Uh, in, in the next few verses, in verses 2 through 5, Jeremiah comes and tells Zedekiah that his and Judah's days are numbered. This is a hopeless situation. Zedekiah would do well to resign himself to that and to give up any hopes of deliverance. And if he would just surrender, he would spare himself and Jerusalem a whole lot of trouble. He would save a whole lot of lives by not dragging out this siege. And so Jeremiah comes and tells him that. When we come down to verse 8, this is an interaction between Jeremiah and, and Zedekiah that takes place in the same time period. However, verses 21 and 22 will mention the fact that for a time, Babylon had actually withdrawn. They had come and invaded. They had overthrown a lot of the uh, uh, Judean villages, but they had withdrawn from Jerusalem for a time, making Zedekiah think they had been delivered. We know this in history. In the year 588, the Pharaoh, Pharaoh Hophra, came from Egypt, and he uh, came out to meet Babylon, and this caused a break in the siege of Jerusalem as Babylon went to meet Egypt's army and to deal with them. And so it's during this time the siege began, and then there is a respite that, for all they know, means it's over, we're delivered, we're safe from Babylon. It's during this time that the events of verses 8 through the end of the chapter, take place. So with that context, let's read what happens next. Verse 8. The word, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them, that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed all the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. Verse 11. But afterwards, they turned round and took back the male and female slaves that they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. So verse 8 says, Zedekiah made a covenant that he and everyone who owned Hebrew slaves would set them free. Now, why do that? There's probably a number of reasons. They're not spelled out, but we can make some good guesses. There would have been practical reasons to do that. Think about during a siege, and Babylon's bearing down on you, and there are no fields to work. Everyone's behind the city walls. There are too many mouths to feed, and if you had slaves in your home, you're responsible for feeding them. So there's sort of a practical, sort of cynical reason to do that is we're free of responsibility for them, and we free them. I think a compelling case could be made that there would have been religious reasons to do this, not the least is Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 15, which says that every seven years, Israel is to release their slaves. Uh, that the, the uh, institution of slavery in Israel is often called is not what we normally think of uh, that happened in this country some time ago. Uh, it was a much different, a temporary arrangement. 
And so there would have been good religious reasons to do that. However, I also think if we've read, if we've learned anything about Zedekiah, we should think about anything that he does that seems good and we should regard it with some suspicion. There might be something else going on here. It seems to me that during the desperation of the siege, when it looks like all hope is lost, Zedekiah, as kind of a last resort, finally decides to try out some covenant keeping for a change. Sort of like a kid who's on his way to be spanked and he starts shouting, I'll be good, I'll be good, I'll be good. Right? In his desperation, he finally resorts to the thing he should have done all along, be good. And so in the siege, we're desperate. I've tried everything else I know to do. I guess we'll just try to keep the covenant and ask God to come deliver us. I think something like that is happening. And so he makes a proclamation of liberty. We're going to all release our slaves. But then verse 11 says that after making the covenant to free the slaves, Zedekiah and the noblemen turn right back around and they re-enslave them. Seems what happened is the siege is on. We release the slaves. We try to win God's favor. But then the siege lifts. Temporarily, they don't know it's temporary, but it lifts. And they change their tune. When it looked like all hope was lost, when, when there was no food to feed the slaves, when they hoped to appease God by keeping his law for a change, they released the slaves. That seems like a good idea. But as soon as they think they're saved, as soon as it seems like regular life is going to resume, as soon as it seems like actually now we need some people to work the fields, they want their slaves back and they go back on their promise. Back to normal means we can break God's law again, is what they do. Well, in verse 12, God weighs in on all of this. Verse 12. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying at the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned round and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. So what God does is he quotes his own law at verse 14 about releasing the slaves every four years. And he points out this has been ignored by generations of Israelites. It was then seemingly obeyed by Zedekiah, a rare time of repentance on this law in particular, only then to be taken back again. You turned round, verse 16, and profaned my name. You know, it's bad enough Zedekiah just broke a promise, but it's particularly galling, God says, considering your own history as slaves in Egypt, which he references in verse 13. Consider your own bondage. You know, Anytime God mentions, uh, especially in the law of Moses, laws on servants, God always makes reference to their own enslavement in Egypt as a reminder of how they are to handle this institution, which is why it is so limited and frankly so humane in, in Israel. And so he continues in verse 17, and he pronounces three, pun three punishments for this broken promise. The first punishment is... Uh, Ironic one, a sarcastic one. Verse 17, Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty. Everyone, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor, behold, God says, I proclaim to you liberty. But then he says to the sword 
to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Zedekiah has made a mockery of the concept of liberty. He has proclaimed it, and then he has done the opposite of it by taking it back. He has made a mockery of the concept of liberty. And what God says here is, Zedekiah, if this is what liberty means to you, of re-enslaving people, then God says, I'll go ahead and abide by your definition and proclaim liberty right back to you. I proclaim to you liberty, liberty to the sword, liberty to pestilence, liberty to famine. I'm going to make these things, I'm going to liberate these horrible things to come to you and to make these things happen to you. And so I proclaim to you, Zedekiah, liberty. Verse 18, God says, I proclaim to you covenant curses. Verse 18, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut into and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, and I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. So the reference here, he keeps talking about cutting a calf in half. The reference here is to an ancient sort of primal covenant ratification ceremony. The ancient peoples, we can see this in history, when they made a covenant, they didn't do something wimpy like sign a piece of paper. Uh, they were much more dramatic about it, let's say. What they would often do is they would cut an animal in two, and then they would pass, they would walk between the halved animal, and then they would make a pledge to this effect. May the Lord do this to me if I do not keep my word. There is uh, this exact thing happening in Genesis 15, by the way, with God and Abraham. And may I also add, the word that you see made in verse 18, that um, you also see it in verses 8 and 13 and 15. Every time it says God made a covenant, the actual verb there, the little verb is actually not made, it's cut. God doesn't make covenants, he cuts covenants. It's a reference to this practice. So here's the point. When you agree to a covenant in this way, you don't just say, I'm going to do what I said. You agree to a punishment for not doing what I said. God is saying, when you made this covenant, you passed between the pieces. You already agreed to the fate of the dismembered animal for yourself. And so when I bring Babylon to dismember you and to lay out your pieces for the birds to eat like that animal, don't ask, why is this happening? You already agreed to it. You already said yourself that this would happen should you go back on your word. And so I'm just going to do to you what you already said, what you already agreed to. Verse 21, God says, I'm going to bring an end to all of this. Verse 21, and Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, God says, I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which is withdrawn from you. Behold, I will command, declares the Lord, and will bring them back to this city, and they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without, without inhabitant. Babylon had temporarily withdrawn to fight Egypt, giving Zedekiah and Judah hope salvation was possible. Maybe we've been delivered. Maybe God has looked kindly on us. To which God says, no, Babylon will be back soon. This time they'll, they'll be done with you for good. They'll capture you. They'll destroy your city. I'll make the cities of Judah desolation without inhabitant. This story is the final straw for God in his long history with unfaithful Judah. This is the final straw. But, but it's almost worse than just being unfaithful. It's that they sort of repented in the crisis only to take it back when they thought the crisis averted. And that somehow seems even worse. 
When the siege is on, when things look hopeless, when food is low, when desperation is palpable, Zedekiah did a righteous thing. He released the slaves. But when the siege lifted, when it seemed normal economic conditions might resume, when the fields needed working again, Zedekiah thought better of his promise. The crisis led to repentance. All of a sudden, Zedekiah got real interested in doing right. But when the crisis passed and things go back to normal, he lost all interest in liberty and justice And he sort of unrepented. Which is, I think, a brief lesson, by the way. You know, crisis does have a way of of sobering us up. And that can be a good thing. There can be wake-up calls. As the saying goes, there are no atheists in foxholes. When you get in that desperate situation, we start getting real serious about our maker and about our spiritual lives. But I wonder how often it's happened that when you get out of the foxhole, when the crisis passes we quickly find out whether our repentance and our promises to God were genuine or whether all along God was just our magic genie who we appealed to when he needed help getting out of a pinch. When the crisis averts, when the crisis goes goes away, then we find out what was really happening in our hearts all along. And just as as another side note, do you realize God has given us a crucial tool to help us avoid this sort of crisis morality? That when we make these pledges to do things, when we make these pledges about what we are going to do and what we believe, God has given us a tool to hold us accountable to those pledges. You know what the tool is called? It's called confession. Confession. In both senses of the word, when we confess Christ, when we first become Christians, and then when we confess our sin. When we announce, when we announce to the church our decision to follow Christ as Lord, or when we confess our sins to someone else, when we come out with it, here is what I plan to do, here is what has happened, we are inviting accountability into our lives. We are enlisting people to hold us accountable. We are inviting people to say, hey, you told me you wanted to be done with that sin. You told me you confessed that sin to me and, and asked for help. And so why are you involved with it again? If only someone had come to Zedekiah with that word. Maybe someone tried, Jeremiah tried. You told me you were going to do this. Why aren't you doing it? That's what confession invites into our lives. Or you said you dedicated your life to Christ. I was there when you were baptized. So why haven't I seen you at services for a month? Confession invites that accountability into our lives. Zedekiah's broken promise is really the final straw for God. And it's with that that we go back 12 years in time to chapter 35 and we meet a group of people called the Rechabites. And at first we read the story and we say, what does this have to do with Zedekiah? Well, we'll get to that. So let's start in verse 1, Jeremiah 35 and verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, so were two kings in the past, son of Josiah, king of Judah. And this is the word. Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers, then offer them wine to drink. Skip down to me, verse, uh, with me to verse 5. Verses uh, 3 and 4 mention the names of the people of this house, and I don't want to pronounce all those names. Verse 5. Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups. And I said to them, Drink wine. But they answered, We will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, quote, You shall not drink wine, neither shall your sons forever. You shall not build a house. You shall not sow seed. You shall not plant or have a vineyard, but shall live in tents all your days that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. And then they continue. 
We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us, to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, and not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyard or field or seed, but we have lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Syrians. So we are living in Jerusalem. So again, verse 1 has us 12 years prior to chapter 34. We're in the reign of Jehoiakim, year 601. This was a time during the initial subjugation of Babylon, which he references there at the end, when they begin to try to subdue Jerusalem and intimidate them, but they're not destroying it. That doesn't come for another, another decade and a half. But Jeremiah is instructed to invite a group of people called the Rechabites to the temple and while he invites them to the temple, he is to offer them wine to drink. That's, that's the object lesson. So who in the world are these people, the Rechabites? Well, they are a family or a clan inside Judah, Judeans, but a particular family. Uh, for various reasons, some people think they were metal workers by trade. I don't know about that. But we learn here about some of their distinctive beliefs and practices. They had some scruples about them. Basically, their rules were no, no wine, no uh, grape-based uh, drink whatsoever, no farming, we are not to sow seeds at all, and no houses. We don't build houses, we live in tents. And this is what we do in this family, they said. These were commands given them by their ancestor, Jonadab, 250 years earlier. They had these, these words. Jonadab, their forefather, said, here's how we live in this family and 250 years later, they're still living that way. Now, why these rules exactly? Why, why do they have these extra scruples? We don't know for sure, but I do want to offer a compelling interpretation that some have set forth. You know, when Israel settled down in the land in the time of Joshua, they, farming was really the way they made their living. And it was shortly after they settled in the land that they began to give in temptations to worship gods like Baal. What were gods like Baal? Baal was a fertility god. Baal was someone you offered sacrifices to so he would increase your harvests. That was part of what he did. And it was that sort of thing that led to the downfall of the nation. And so these choices, to live nomadically, not not making a living from farming, and not even consuming the, the chief cash crop of the land, grapes, this was a way of safeguarding to an extra extra degree safeguarding the faithfulness of this family. I'll also add their ancestor who's mentioned, Jonadab, he's mentioned in 2 Kings 10. He took part in the slaughter of priests of Baal and helped destroy a temple of Baal in 2 Kings 10. So think of the, I think of the Rechabites as sort of an ancient version of the Amish. There are people who have foregone certain trappings of modern life and they have set in these extra guardrails here just the way we live now. And they're extra scruples, and it's not like have to do stuff, but they just said, this is how we live, this helps us be faithful, and we're just going to go with this. So Jeremiah, what he does, God asks him, take these people, invite them to the temple, which may perhaps try to, he's trying to awe them with the location. Look at this important place we're in. And then he doesn't just ask them if they want to drink wine. In verse 5, he sets pictures of the stuff in front of them. What this is, is a test of their faithfulness to the commands of their forefather. 
And what do they say? Verse 8, they say, We have obeyed the voice of Jonadab and all he commanded us. And then they go on to repeat everything Jonadab had commanded them 250 years earlier. And then they, they also add in verse 11, the fact that we live in and around Jerusalem, this is not due to us surrendering our principles. This is safety in a time of Babylonian threat. But rest assured, we are faithful to the words of our Father. So what in the world is this about? In verse 12, God makes the point of this whole scene clear. This is what he's after. Verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, Go and say to the people of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction and listen to my words? Declares the Lord. The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept, and they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their father's command. I have spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way. Amend your deeds, and do not go after other gods and serve them, and then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers. But you did not incline your ear or listen. The sons of Jonadab, the sons of Rechab, have kept the command that their father gave them, but this people have not obeyed me. What God wants to do is to hold up for Israel an example of the Rechabites, an example of faithfulness. Their father, Jonadab, who's long dead, he spoke one time 250 years ago, and they have managed to remain faithful to their father's word. A man, 250 years ago, now dead, and they are faithful to his word. They have obeyed their father's command, verse 14. The question God asks is, is Judah obeying their father's command? And here's the thing, here's the kicker. Unlike the Rechabites, Judah's father isn't dead. God isn't dead. And unlike the Rechabites, whose father only spoke once, 250 years ago, God says in verse 14, I have spoken to you persistently. Over and over and over again, I've sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And then there's even this. Jonadab gave some scruples about farming and nomadic living. Things that God didn't require of them. I haven't spoken to you about little scruples, little odd ways of living. I've spoken to you about life and death, about sin and righteousness, about how to live in the land and prosper. And you don't seem interested. Verse 16 really sums up the contrast. Verse 16, again, The sons of Jonadab, sons of Rechab, have kept the command that their father gave them, but this people has not obeyed me. These people, he says, are a witness against you, Judah. They have managed to remain faithful to their earthly father's scruples, but Judah, you can't remain faithful to your Heavenly Father's capital T truth. What is wrong with this picture? And so in verse 17, God says, here is my judgment, first on Judah and then on the Rechabites. Verse 17, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them and they have not listened. I have called to them and they have not answered because you will not listen to the words of your father, because you will not abide in the covenant I made with you, all the blessings of the covenant will be taken away. If you don't want to participate in the covenant, which you've shown, that's fine. We'll take away the blessings of the covenant because that's the part of the covenant. That's what happens to Judah. Here's what happens to the Rechabites. Verse 18. But to the house of the Rechabites, Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
Because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab your father and have kept all his precepts and done all he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall never lack a man to stand before me. So in contrast to the judgment of Judah is really the preservation of the Rechabites. He says in verse 19, you shall never lack a man to stand before me. I don't know exactly what that means, but standing before God often has to do with uh, priestly service in the temple. Basically, God says, I'm going to preserve these people and I'm going to put them in an honored position. Now, there's really no record in the Bible of what happened to this group after the destruction of Jerusalem in 587. There is a mention of a single Rechabite man in Nehemiah 13 when the people returned to the land, or rather Nehemiah 3. Um, he helped repair one of the gates of Jerusalem and he was put in charge of a district, uh, the district of Beth Hakarim, which ironically means house of the vineyard. Ironic because they weren't allowed to have vineyards. So do you see why these two events in Jeremiah 34 and 35, 12 years apart, out of order, do you see why they're placed side by side here? On the one hand, we have the Rechabites, staunchly faithful and loyal to the word of their father. The consummate example of promise keepers. And on the other hand, we have Zedekiah, who manages at one point to stumble into a righteous act only to go back on it when circumstances change. The Rechabites honor the word of their father who spoke 250 years ago. Zedekiah can't even honor his own word that he spoke a month ago. Two models of faithfulness are being held out to the original readers. Let me remind you, the original readers of this book, Jeremiah, are people who are preparing to return to the promised land. And this book is really a challenge to them. Are we going to make the same mistake or are we going to do it different this time? Two models of faithfulness. The Zedekiah model of faithfulness, that's what got you exiled in the first place. Meanwhile, the model of the Rechabites, which caused God to promise them, you will never lack a man to stand before me. Does that sound good to you? And I think God is trying to tell all those who read these chapters to look at ourselves. Is our Father's word something to do only when we get around to it? Is it something we only appeal to in desperation and crisis? And finally, we, need, we can't do it ourselves. We need God's help, so now I'll get serious about serving God. Is our Father's word something we do, something we intend to, only after we've exhausted every other option? Or is our Father's word so precious that centuries later, we are still clinging to every last syllable. Is our faithfulness, to put it another way, is our faithfulness influenced by the headline of the moment? And Zedekiah puts his finger to the wind and says, hmm, can we serve God? Should we serve God this week or not? If it's convenient, no, we're not doing it anymore. Is our faithfulness like that influenced by the headline of the moment? Or is it like the Rechabites, simply an adherence to an ancient and unchanging word from our Father? Our Father has spoken, and we're just going to do it. He said it centuries ago. Well, what does that change? If he spoke, we will abide by it. Two models of faithfulness, mirror images, and the challenge set before every reader. Whose example will we follow? So maybe there's someone here this, this morning who realizes you have really been on a Zedekiah-type path. You have treated God's word in this convenient way. Do I want to do it or not? Should I feel, do I feel like I do it or not? Is it convenient to do it or not? Or are you a Rechabite? Our Father has spoken and would do what our Father says. If there's someone that needs to come and to confess, to own up to our beliefs, to own up to our own sin, and to seek help from our Father, 
someone who needs help on their walk to be faithful with God. Whatever your spiritual need, come forward now as we stand and sing. Jesus is tenderly calling the home, calling today, calling today. Watch up the sunshine of love with the room, farther and farther away. Calling today, calling today. Oh